2: Paul Kaufman has been a pastor, an evangelist, Bible college and university professor, but more than that, he's just a wonderful and genuine man of God. In this sermon, back in 2005 at the Dayton Interchurch Holiness Convention, he preaches about the Bible. I know you're going to enjoy this excellent sermon.
0: Keep passing it on and on.
2: to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles or New Testaments, open them to John chapter 1, please. John chapter 1. And I want to say, too, how much I appreciate each one of you who have come out this morning. I'm particularly happy to have my wife and daughter with me. They are my best critics. My wife is, uh, reminds me of a lady one time. She and her husband had gone somewhere. He was in academia. He gave a speech. Uh, it was a pretty important affair, and they gave him a glowing introduction, and uh, he gave the speech. And on the way home, he's driving now, and it's dark, and he's looking out through the windshield, sort of philosophical, uh, conjuring up all the humility that he has. And he says, dear, he said, really, he said, how many people do you know are worthy of that kind of an introduction? And she said, one less than you're thinking right now. All of you preachers are happy for a wife who keeps your feet down on the ground. John chapter 1, verse 1. You could all quote it by memory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. With the help of the Lord, I'd like to speak to you this morning on the topic of God's Word. Shall we pray? Gracious Father, before the message we asked you this morning that you would come and give us that special touch, that special help that is needed. While you're helping me, touch the hearts of the hearers. And for all you do, we'll praise you in advance, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the beginning was the Word. Now notice it doesn't say, in the beginning was the Son. We know that's who it's referring to, the S-O-N, the second person of the Trinity. But he says, in the beginning was the Word. Now in the Greek thinking, a word is a means of communication. The word logos carries the idea of, of a concept, a mode of communicating with one another. Now, I could have taken you back to Jeremiah chapter 1 and read a passage that says, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Or if you go through the prophets, you find again and again, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, came to whoever uh, we're studying about. Actually, in the Hebrew mind, a word is not a concept. A word is an event or a happening the word of the Lord happened to Jeremiah would be one way you could translate it. You could actually say the word of the Lord indwelt Jeremiah. It becomes part of him. It became Jeremiah. Something that should happen every Sunday morning when every God-called preacher gets up to preach. The word ought to be part of him. And thus he preaches it forth to the congregation. But for the Greeks, it was the idea of communication, Words are the means of our communication. This morning, if I couldn't use words while I try to speak to you, we'd have a mighty dull Bible study. I could stand here and smile at you, shrug my shoulders, wave my hands. You wouldn't get much out of it. There comes a point when I have to uh, open my mouth and release what old Lawrence B. Hicks called my brain children unto you so that you know what I'm thinking. A thought's up here, and I use the speech organ to convey my thoughts to you. Words are a means of communication. Now, I found out recently just how important words are. I was sitting in my office at the college and the phone rang, and it happened to be the secretary of the associate executive director of AABC, now known as ABHE, that's the accrediting association for Bible colleges. Patty was Dr. Bell's secretary. She came on the phone and she said, Dr. Kaufman, she said, uh, can you be free in three weeks? I said, why do you ask? Well, she said, we, Dr. Bell wants you to be part of an evaluation team. Okay, I said, uh, yes, I think I could work that into my schedule. A Wednesday, Thursday, and a Friday about three weeks down the road. I said, uh, Where are you gonna send me? I was hoping she'd say GBS or Hope Sound so I could go give them a hard time and afflict them. But she didn't say that. I knew they weren't up for evaluation anyhow. But that perverse thought went through my mind. She said, we want you to go to Colegio Biblica Pentecostal de Puerto Rico. Oh, I said, that. that sounds like Spanish. Well, she said, you're brilliant. That's Spanish. I said, that sounds like Puerto Rico. She said, you're catching on fast. She said, how's your Spanish? Well, I said it's a little rough. In fact, I said it's non-existent. I knew Buenos Dias. That won't get you too far beyond the morning hours. It won't work past lunch, I guess. And I read a word I remember somewhere. It looks like gracious, but I think it's gracias. That'll, That'll help you out too, but... You can't do a team evaluation with two or three words. I got on the bus that morning. I asked the lady at the hotel. I said, which bus do I catch? I want to go into old uh, San Juan. She told me which number of the bus. And I went down and stood on the boulevard and got on the bus. Just about paralyzed with fear, but I had this sense of adventure about me. And I sat and listened to all this Spanish going back and forth on this big bus. I found the trolley car. I went out to the old forts. About three o'clock in the afternoon, I somehow got back to the hotel. I went up to the clerk who had told me which bus to ride and I said, I made it. Like a kid who had just walked out to the end of the driveway and back, I felt so proud of myself. But I found out how important words are. Words are necessary for communication. Did you ever try to read a syllabus written in Spanish while an interpreter sits there and picks out words for you? or try to do faculty minutes in Spanish. And I was the only fellow on the team who didn't speak Spanish, but I did find out how important words are. Words are significant. Words are necessary. Now in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two things I notice here, one is The word T-H-E is not in the original Greek. It could be read in a beginning. And John is saying, go back in your mind as far as you can to what you conceive of as as a beginning. Sort of drive a mental stake in the ground at that point. And he said, when you go back as far as you can, what our brother was trying to describe yesterday in his wonderful message, way back in the beginning, somewhere in the past, He says the word was. He already was past tense. Go as far back as you can and the word was. He's the eternal son of God, the eternal word of God. Now you understand God, the creator made our beautiful world. And then he reaches that point where he says, son, they've corrupted themselves. It's necessary for you to go down to become the sin offering, the sin bearer for the world. You need to go down not only to be the sin offering, but you need to go down to reveal the essence of the Father to the world. They don't know anything about me except what you will tell them, what you will show them. And so the Son came down. The Son, the Alpha and the Omega, you know, are the first and the last words of the Greek alphabet. So I like to think of Jesus Christ as God's alphabet. He comprises all the words that are necessary when he comes down to earth from the other world. On one occasion, Philip came to him and he said, Lord, he said, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And Jesus said to Philip, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm the word, I'm the communication. Everything you know about the Father, you can find out by watching me. It's a little bit like holding a mirror on a 45 degree angle. As you look into it, you can see what's up. He says, if you look at me, you've seen the Father. You see how he's the revealer, he's the communicator. He's the God man. Church councils for years grappled with that concept. How can he be God and how can he be man, the God man? We understand the necessity of the virgin birth. Not partly God and partly man. Not as though God were white and man was black and they mixed somehow into some sort of a murky gray. But Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. Now after his years of sojourn here on earth, after the crucifixion and after the ascension, you remember he said he'd pray the Father and the Father would send the Spirit. The comforter. But Jesus also did something else. He prepared for them that thing that you've got on your lap with you today. That sacred book is the written word of God. It's called the Holy Bible. And I want to suggest to you that just as Jesus Christ was man and God, that book on your lap is man and God. He's the God-man. That's the God-book. God is the author, but he used human beings as the writers. We can read it and we can see the traces left behind of various writers. In our Greek class, we start translating here in John. Simple sentences, simple vocabulary words, that's John's style. But we could go to Luke, the physician. You find long, complicated sentences, a lot of clauses, a lot of modifiers, very complex. Why? Luke wrote differently than John did. And I could take you to the Hebrew Old Testament. I can show you, for example, that the one who wrote the historical books is vastly different than, say, the prophet Isaiah. Just doing a word count, we know that Isaiah used far more vocabulary words than any other Old Testament writer. He had a good mind. He was well-educated. And as you read through there in the original, you find a lot of new words that Isaiah uses. It's his style. And so it's a it's a God-man book. And this is the book that you have with you on your lap. Holy men of God spake as they were moved. And we understand that holy men of God wrote as they were moved by God's Holy Spirit. He superintended that book on your lap so that you can trust what's written there. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is quick and powerful. To be quick means to be alive. Now, I heard one preacher one time said there are two kinds of pedestrians, the quick and the living, the quick and the dead, rather. The quick and the dead. We understand what he was saying. You got to be fast. You got to be quick. In early days, when the woman had conceived, she would talk about sensing or feeling the quickening in the womb. What was it? Life. The child, the fetus is beginning to move. There's quickening there. And Hebrew says the word of God is quick. Could I say to you that book on your lap today is alive? That's a living thing on your lap. Be careful how you treat it. No book has been loved so fervently and yet hated so furiously. You know, when I was a boy one time, I picked up some kind of a news magazine. I don't know if they had Newsweek in time way back in those days when dinosaurs walked the earth or not, but way back in the dim past. And I remember somewhere in the back, there was a box that had the 10 bestsellers. And I noticed Holy Bible was number one. And I would check every so often. And again and again, it was at the head of the list. But one day I went and looked and I saw that it wasn't even on the list. That hurt. That bothered me. I know there's a famine for the Word of God, but is the Bible really that unpopular? But I did a little more research, and you know what I discovered? I discovered that the Bible is so far and away the bestseller year after year, they just don't bother listing it anymore. That gave me a little more courage. Somewhere between 20 and 30 million Bibles are produced every year. It's a world bestseller. It's been translated into more languages than any other book ever written. It's had more commentaries written about it than any other literary masterpiece. The Bible fits all ages, all minds, all peoples. It's so simple that a child loves to sit on grandpa's lap and hear the Bible read and the stories of the Bible shared. And yet it's so profound that it can exhaust the libraries of the great universities and seminaries trying to plumb the depths of the sublime Word of God. No other book is that simple and yet that profound. Now the Bible doesn't respond to all attitudes the same. To the unbelieving critic, it's a closed book. Years ago, I was a student in Johns Hopkins University, the oldest building on campus, McGilvery Hall, up on the second floor of the big seminar room where old Dr. William Foxwell Albright used to teach Hebrew and archeology. span had a huge table, you would probably put 35 or 40 people around that one table. They must have built it in the room, he couldn't have gotten it in otherwise. And I was taking a Hebrew class, there were three students. This great big table, here's our professor at one end of the table, I'm on one side, and two Catholic boys are on the other side. And for three hours, every Thursday afternoon, we read and translated Hebrews, a Hebrew while she picked our brains to see what we had learned. After a semester, they dropped out, and I was the only student. Now, I'll tell you what, the law of averages are against you. There's a pretty good chance if you're the only student, you're going to get called on rather frequently. But you know that professor, a lady professor, she could parse those verbs. She knew every preposition, every conjugation, every form. But to her, she might as well have been reading a computer printout because she didn't know the author of it. It was just so many words on a piece of paper. It was just a ticket to some tenured position in some university somewhere. I say the Bible doesn't respond the same to all minds. To the believer, to the true seeker after truth, it's the way of life. The Bible never grows old, never gets stale. In my 21 years in the pastorate, A lot of times I could take the spiritual temperature of my people by discovering how much they were in love with the Word. Remember when you first prayed through how much you liked to read it? You couldn't get enough of God's love letter. When I asked you this morning, do you feel that way about it still today? You can find out how you're doing by how much you love this book, how much you want to read it. No other book has produced such amazing results, because it's a living word. It's alive. We used to have a nutty translation, on a uh, saying on the playground when I was a kid. Somebody would say, where can a 500 pound gnat go? G-N-A-T, a gnat, 500 pound gnat. And the answer is, anywhere he wants to. Yeah. Now someone said about the Bible, you don't need to defend it, it's like a lion, just turn it loose, it'll take care of itself. I like that, don't you? You don't need to wear it. listen, this book's not on trial anymore. It's like the great painting on the wall of the art gallery and somebody's standing there critiquing it. And the curator comes by and says, friend, the painting is no longer on trial. It's already been established how great it is. You better go back to the textbook and do a little more study and you're not looking too good. That's how it is with the Bible. It's a lion. You don't need to defend it. Just turn it loose. The lion of the tribe of Judah hath prevailed. Praise the Lord. This is his word. We don't need to worry about it. It'll stand when everything else is gone, friend. God's word will be standing firm. Now Satan for hundreds of years, has tried to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people. We read thrilling stories how they would round up the Bibles in the villages and turn them over to the priest, and, and he would try to destroy them or put them on a ship and send them out into the ocean. How God would protect his word, that word would float back to the shore, and the peasants would fish it out of the water and still read it. Satan was trying to keep the people from reading the Bible. But in the last couple hundred years, Satan has realized that with the advent of the printing press and modern printing equipment, it's impossible to keep the word out of the hands of the people. With 20 to 30 million Bibles being produced every year, that's not going to work. So what Satan has done now is he has attacked the word. He has undermined people's faith in it. Satan says, you want to read it? Go ahead. It's just a folklore of mythology, just a collection of tales from the Hebrew prophets and shepherds. I've sat in those classes where people systematically try to destroy the Bible. My brother said the other day, for those who go away to the universities, up to 70% of them lose their faith by the time they're finished with that. Between 55 and 60% of them lose their faith in the first year. And I'll give you another scary statistic. Ten percent of them lose their faith in the so-called Christian liberal arts colleges. You want to be careful where you send your children to school, friends. I'm meeting a lot of parents who sort of living vicariously through their children. The things they couldn't afford, they're making sure their kids get it. And they're sending them away to the big schools and they're paying big tuition to let them sit under professors that'll destroy their faith in God's holy word. I was a student in the Hebrew University in Baltimore. I had my first exposure to German higher criticism. Old Dr. Ivory was 70 years old. He was dean of the undergraduate school, and I was taking his introductory class on introduction to Hebrew literature. He passed out the syllabus, got behind his lecture. There were about 40 or 50 students in that class. Now, this is a very prestigious school in Baltimore. A lot of wealthy Jews went there. In fact, I was the only Gentile. Boy, you want to feel like a pariah sometime. A whole college full of Jews, and I was the only Gentile. And not only that, I would go up in the library and look out over the parking lot, and all I saw were Mercedes-Benz, Audis, Acuras, Jaguars. My old Volkswagen Rabbit, I parked it out on Park Heights Avenue. It, it didn't belong in that stable of thoroughbreds. Wealthy people. Wealthy people. And old Dr. Eerie passed out the syllabus, and then the first words out of his mouth, he said, I want you to forget all that Sunday school stuff you've heard. We're going to study the Bible like scholars. Wow, that kind of set me back. And he launches off telling us, for example, how in Genesis chapter 3, where we have the account of Adam and Eve sinning and God putting them out of the garden. Oh, he said, what that is, he said, He said, that that's trying to tell us how caveman shifted from being carnivores, that is flesh eaters, to where they became cereal crop farmers. Remember God said you'll have to till the ground and make your living by the sweat of your face. He said that's the lesson there. It's, It's a shift in prehistoric days. And these students are sitting there with their mouth open taking this in. Because he had all the credentials. He knew all the answers. After about the third lecture, he came out behind his lectern one night and he dropped his voice and he said something that scared me. He said, now some of you, I can address as friend and just left it sort of hanging there. The implication was if you weren't buying into his line, you probably weren't gonna be his friend. And the chances are, you probably weren't gonna get a very good grade either. I don't know how I did it, but I ended up with an A for the course. God had mercy on me is all I know. Take your Bibles and open them to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you about a man that I met at the university there. Met him in the library one night. He said to me, he said, what do you think about all this stuff Dr. Ivery's teaching us? I said, well, I don't like it. He said, I don't either. And he pointed me to some books that were helping him, and I thank God for him. His name was Keith. Now, Keith had grown up in a Jewish family where his dad had lots of money and apparently lots of pull because he was able to get Keith into Harvard University to study. Now, I want to ask you people, if your dad had money and he had pull and he could get you into Harvard and you were an 18-year-old boy, what would you study? Do you know what Keith studied? Folklore and mythology. Wonderful. What do you do with a degree in folklore and mythology, tell me? It's like studying underwater basket weaving or something. I mean, it's total nonsense. It's meaningless. So he graduates. Now he's got his bachelor's from Harvard in folklore and mythology, and he's wandering around Washington, D.C. And in the suburb of Rockville, he came in contact with a group of Messianic Jews. These were Jews who have accepted Christ as their Savior. There was a Messianic temple there. And Keith started to attend and he got saved. The Lord really saved him. And now the Lord is calling him to go preach to his own people. And he thought the first thing he ought to do is get a degree in Jewish studies. So he's now up in Baltimore at the Hebrew University. And he and I are trying to keep our heads above water in Dr. Ribery's class while he tries to destroy our faith in God's word. Night after night, it kept pounding away on us. Finally, near the end of the course one night, Keith and I, sitting back in the corner there trying to stay out of harm's way, Keith put up his hand. Now, if you're going to interrupt a hotshot university professor with a question, it better be a good one. Dr. Ivery looked at him and he almost glared at him and said, Yeah? Yes? Well, I said, Dr. Ivery said, I'm having a problem here. He said last week, he said, we were studying about Daniel going away in the Babylonian captivity. And tonight you're telling us that the book of Daniel was written about the sixth century BC. He said, that's several hundred years apart. And he opens his Bible to Ezekiel, where yours is open. And notice what he says in verse 13 and 14. Ezekiel says, son of man, When the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand. I will break the staff of the bread thereof, send famine. Verse 14 says, though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness. Dr. Ivery, he says, how can Daniel write the book of Daniel in the 4th century? when Ezekiel's got him living here in the 6th century. Have you ever seen a thermometer go up, the mercury going up in a thermometer? I'll tell you, I saw that man get red hot. I saw fire flash in his eyes. He knew he'd just been skewered by a young upstart who loved the Lord and just happened to have a high view of inspiration. And now all the eyes are on the professor. What's he going to say? Well, they always have an answer. He looked at him with fire in his eyes, and he said, oh, that's not the Daniel you're thinking of. That's a different Daniel. That's Daniel of the Ugaritic language. That's a different Daniel. And as only a young man can do back in those days, Keith looked at him, and he said this. Oh. That kind of translates into you can buy it if you want to, but I'm not buying it. I thank the Lord for Keith. He stood up for the Bible. And the Bible always comes through. The professor was squirming that night. I say it's a lion, friend. Just turn it loose. It'll take care of itself. Now, what we've got to do is get this Bible out to the world around us. I've got to meet that man on the street and somehow convince him that this is God's holy word. So this lion can take care of itself and do something for him. We say it's a living book. Now, how can I convince that man that this Bible is what it claims to be, a supernatural book? And for me, it may not work for you, but for me, the, the best way to convince the world that this is God's holy word is because of the fulfilled prophecy that it contains. Again and again, something is predicted earlier in the Bible, And in some subsequent chapter or book, it's fulfilled. Mere humanity can't do that. Only God can handle that kind of prophecy. Now, what I've got to do is convince him that these prophecies are there and that this is God's word. Let's talk a little bit about prophecy. The people went to Moses and said, Moses, how can we tell if a prophet is a false prophet or not? Oh, Moses said the acid test is very simple. If what the man predicts comes to pass, he's a true prophet. If what he predicts doesn't come to pass, he's a fraud and a fake and take him out and stone him. It's very simple. Let's suppose I tell you this morning that I'm a prophet. I'm going to make some predictions here today. Follow me now. Let's suppose that somewhere in a congregation... There is an expectant mother. Somewhere she has a child, and I find out about it, and I'm going to wax eloquent as a prophet, and I'm going to predict the gender of that child when it's born. And with all my prophetic skills, I'm going to say, when that child is born, it's going to be a boy. And if when the blessed event takes place and it's a boy, you're going to say, wow, that Kaufman, he's a genius. He's a prophet. He predicted it was going to be a boy, and it was wrong that wouldn't convince you why well the odds are 50 50 anybody can take a guess and get it right half the time that's no prophecy or if I predict the outcome of a case at law I say I think they're going to find him guilty 10 weeks later the jury brings in the guilty verdict they say oh that guy he had it right he's a prophet no no you can only find them guilty or not guilty. There aren't too many ways to go. Just take a guess. you get it right half the time. Now let's talk a little bit about some of the prophecies in the Bible. I want to show you how remote the possibilities are of these predictions coming to pass. Let's look at some predictions about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're told in the Old Testament that he would be from the tribe of Judah, What's the odds of that coming to pass? Well, how many tribes were there? 12. You're sharp students. The odds are 1 in 12 that Christ would be born in the tribe of Judah. We're also told that he would inherit the throne of David. Now, how many dynasties were there in ancient Israel? In the division of the monarchy, there was only one dynasty in the south in Judah. And there were five dynasties in the north, so a total of six dynasties. So the odds of Christ being from the line of David are one and six. So multiply six times 12, now you have 72. We're also told that he would be born in Bethlehem. Thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be least among thousands of Israel, out of thee shall come forth one. Now, what's the odds of that coming to pass? Well, you've got to get out your atlas and start counting villages and cities. And, the, and we come up with roughly 120 towns or villages. So the odds are 1 in 120 that Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Now, you have to multiply that times your 72. And now we have the odds of 1 in 8,640 for those three things to come to pass. Do you get a sense of where I'm going with this? We're told that to save his life, there would be a flight into Egypt. Joseph would take the child and his mother into Egypt, count all the countries around about. We'll just say there were six that he could have gone to. Multiply that times your other number. Now you have 51,840. We're told that he would be a prophet. Count all the possible occupations of a man in ancient Israel and multiply your number times that. We're told he would be the priest of the order of Melchizedek, that he would be rejected by the Jews, that his triumphal entry would be riding on a donkey, a young ass, that he would be betrayed by his friend, that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, that the money used would be going for a potter's field. He would be crucified with sinners. His hands and feet would be pierced. He would be mocked and insulted, He would be given gall or vinegar when he was thirsty, that his side would be pierced. Soldiers would cast lots for his garment. Not a bone of his body would be broken. He would be buried with the bridge, and he would resurrect and ascend on high. Praise the Lord. Do you know what the odds of just that many coming to pass are? Let me tell you, friend, you don't have a calculator with enough spaces on it to even do the math we'll round it off to about one in three trillion. And I want you to know every one of those predictions came to pass exactly as it was said. And if that doesn't convince you, Isaiah 7, 14 said the virgin would conceive. Now what's the odds of a virgin birth? The odds are what we would call infinity. So you take your three trillion and multiply it times infinity and see where you're going. I tell you, this book is reliable, friend. You can stake your life on it. If I can put it this way, I'm betting my soul on this book, friend. Will it work? Is it what it claims to be? Let me close with an illustration for my own ministry. Hazel and her husband lived virtually within the shadow of our church. When the sun came up in the east, and shined across the roof of the old church the shadow fell across their house down on the alley below where we lived my wife could stand at her kitchen window at the sink and look out and see hazel sitting on the porch down there again and again i would invite them to church they were the finest couple you'd ever want to meet they were retired a couple of lovely people from west virginia had moved up to ohio now they're retired Could not get them to come to church, though. Every special occasion, every time I'm down at that end of the yard, I walk over and visit, tell them about rally day and friend day, and every day we could conjure up, and they'd always say, well, maybe, but they never came. One day I was out in the backyard, upside down under the lawnmower, changing the blades, a rather undignified position for a pastor, I guess, at the moment. And I heard a crunch on the gravel, and I looked out and stood up, and there came their son, Larry. Larry's 40-some years old. He walks up and stands beside me in the lawnmower there, and I stood up, wiped the grease off my hands. I said, how you doing, Larry? You look kind of crestfallen. Oh, Rev, he said, I'm not doing too good. Really, Larry, what's what's wrong? Well, he said, he said we just got back from the hospital, He said, mom's cancer is back in her arm. I didn't know she had cancer in her arm. Yes, he said, somebody made a mistake. They thought it was bursitis and they were injecting cortisone right into a live tumor. And he said, there's nothing they can do for her. We put her in hospice and we brought her home to die. I'd seen Hazel Hazel walking around, saw her sitting on the forge. Now he said... Mom wants me to ask you something. Now, I want you to listen to the question. He said, Mom wants to know if it'd be okay if she came to church Sunday. (laughs) You can just about guess my answer. I about had a spell. I felt like saying, well, Larry, I've been begging her to come to church. Absolutely. We want her to come to church. Sure enough, the next Sunday morning, here came Hazel, that arm in a sling. She brought three or four people with her, marched up those steps into the vestibule, Greeted me, walked through those doors and all the way down the aisle and sat in the second seat right up front here. It's like she'd been going there all her life. See, Hazel's doing some serious thinking now. She's facing the grim reaper. Of course, I'd been talking with her and her husband. It was clear to me they didn't know Genesis from Revelation. They're the kind of people who need a table of contents and a page number to find a passage. And I said to her one day, I said, Hazel, I said how'd you like it if I'd come down to your house? We'll just sit on the front porch and let you and I do a little Bible study. Oh, she said, I'd like that. It was early in the summer. I said, I'll just come down about 10 o'clock Monday morning. You have a Bible? Yes, she had a Bible. I got my Bible. I was praying, Lord, where do you start trying to help some soul facing death and doesn't even know one thing about your word? You know what the Lord seemed to impress on me? The verse we read this morning, John 1.1. I sat down on the glider across from her swing, and I read to her, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then I went back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And little by little, with the help of the Spirit, I tried to walk her through creation and the fall and her need of a savior all the time went fast she really enjoyed dad I I got up to leave prayed with her I said now I'll be back on Wednesday 10 o'clock yeah she said I'm looking forward to it 10 o'clock Wednesday I went down got up on the porch sat down she said now before you begin pastor she said she said my daughter and my daughter-in-law They want to know if they can come to Bible study today. They were sitting in the kitchen the other day, listening to everything you said. They want to come to Bible study. Kind of sheepish looking, these two ladies got up and walked out, had their Bibles with them, they sat down. Now I have three students, and I keep telling them, open it up, the plan of salvation. They just took it in like hungry birds, their mouth open. More and more are coming with hazel. I suppose three or four weeks went by, one morning I gave a simple little altar call. Didn't have a lot of singing, didn't have to pull a long time. You know when somebody's hungry, you don't have to do all that. I just opened the, the altar up and out came Hazel, that arm in a sling, walked down there and knelt down. We gathered in to pray with her. We didn't pray very long. You don't have to tease and beg and pull and chuck them under the chin. She just looked up at me and the shine of heaven was all over her face. It was pretty obvious what had happened. There had been a transformation. And I said, why don't you get up and tell us about it, Hazel? And she turned around and gave the first testimony she'd ever given in her life. I'll tell you, it was beautiful. Well, weeks went by. The arm was getting worse. It was starting to break open. It was festering. The hospice nurse was coming more and more frequently. More and more pain medication. We talked about baptism. And I said, Hazel, you want to be baptized, don't you? Yes, she does. She said, I do. I said, you know, we usually go up on the hill to the lake up there, but it's November, it's cold out there, and you've got that bad arm. I said, it doesn't matter how wet you get. I said, we'll just do a sprinkling ceremony here in the front of the church. He said, I'll be fine. You know, it really doesn't matter how wet you get, friends. Well, you know, when there's a baby dedication or uh, something like that, word gets out among the relatives, and they'll turn up for church, you know. Word must have gotten out around the client that there was going to be a baptism in church. And I'll tell you, that Sunday morning, that place was packed out. Man, they came out of the hills, people I'd never met before. They were coming for Hazel's baptism. We got through Sunday school, got into the worship service. We sang some of the grand old songs of the church. And at the right time, I stepped down there with my little bowl of water and my discipline, and I called Hazel forward. She knelt down there, that arm in pain. I took my hand and I'll tell you what, I, I love a good baptismal service. Do you? You enjoy a good baptismal service? I just love to take them out and dunk them under. God always comes to a baptismal service. I've never been to a bad one yet. He just seems to honor that. But I'll tell you what, I've never been to a baptismal service like I was that morning. I put my hand on her head and I baptized her in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you know there wasn't a dry eye in the church that morning. Hazel was making her public identification with Christ. We baptized her. Now everybody was hoping that she'd make it till Christmas. Hazel loved to decorate her house for Christmas. It was kind of a special prayer request, kind of behind the scenes. Family was telling me, "We, we hope mom will make it. We hope she'll make it. They decorated the house. She was in her hospital bed in the living room. But you know, it wasn't to be. Somewhere around the 21st, 22nd of December, got a phone call one night. Larry said, Pastor, he said, you better come on down. She said, he said, Mom Mom doesn't have long to live. My wife and I put on our coats. It was cold. We walked down across the yard, cars everywhere. There was the family. My wife, the nurse, stood on one side and I stood on the other. And we watched Hazel. We saw that chest go up and down, slower and slower. You know, friend, it's an awful thing to see someone die. It's a sobering event. And I watched that little chest go up and down and stopped moving. Now the family wanted me to head the funeral. Now I've preached some rough funerals. In my ministry, I've had this funeral for three people who had committed suicides. Those are rough funerals to preach, friend. But I'll tell you what, that crowd gathered in just before Christmas in that funeral home. It was packed out. Brother Sankey, it was the easiest funeral I ever had in my life. My message was something just sort of describing what Hazel must be seeing in heaven. I just talked about heaven. The more I talked about it, the hungrier I got And I could see some tears running down some faces. Is this Bible alive, friend? Is this thing a living entity on your lap? It's the lion. It's the book of God. It's the book that you and I need for salvation. It's the book we want to die by because it's the book we're going to be judged by. God bless you.
0: It has been past I, I don't wanna